I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, and verse 15 to 16. Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, and verse 15. The words of Christ, and he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And our subject is the saving grace of repentance. In verse 16, we see the word believeth. He that believeth, and again, he that believeth not. But we take the word believe as being uh, synonymous with repent and yield to him. Well, we'll prove that in the verses ahead as we look at them. We've looked at the incidental miracles of Calvary in recent weeks. Incidental miracles, amazing miracles while Christ hung on the cross. And we've looked at the unbelief of believers in these final words of the Gospel of Mark. The disciples were found in unbelief with regard to the resurrection. And they're given reproof and a great promise. And we've seen how the closing words of Mark, promising the signs following, were applicable to those disciples in their unbelief. But now I want to look at verses 15 and 16. And with these, we really come to the end of our studies in Mark's gospel. He said unto them, Go ye unto all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Just by way of introduction, then. I should say that uh, uh, we believe and we accept that the closing verses of the Gospel of Mark, verses 9 to 20, are part of the inspired Word of God. There's a certain amount of doubt has crept into even Bible-believing circles, evangelical circles, concerning this, because so many of the modern versions, though they include them, point out that they're not found in the earliest manuscripts. That's something of a nonsense thing to say, but I mention this in, just in passing. I read that uh, from the last count, some 99.8% of the earliest of Greek manuscripts all include this passage, and only a tiny number omits. This is a senseless controversy. Started off years ago, by cynical, unbelieving scholars to cast doubt on the closing verses of Mark. Which is absurd when such a majority of manuscripts affirm and quotations from very early Christian and other writers in the second century quote from this very passage. I won't go into the arguments for or against, but just to say this, I think the trouble is that some even good Bible-believing people have been influenced to a large extent without their realizing it by unbelieving and cynical scholarship, which is not warranted. The grounds of doubting, 
the last verses of Mark as being authentic and part of the gospel mostly rest on the view that some of the expressions in the passage do not fit the gospel of Mark and are not typical of the literature of the gospel of Mark. But that's hotly contended and uh, really quite unreasonable and poorly argued. So sorry to take so long on that. There's no doubt in my mind that this is part of the scripture as we take it to be and as it's included in most translations. And there's no need to cast any doubt upon it. But I come to verse 15 and just very briefly Uh, because I want to move on to believe and explaining that word in verse 16. In verse 15, go ye into all the world. This is a command of Christ. Of course, this is parallel to the Great Commission at the closing chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Many think it's the same reporting, exactly the same commission, the same instance. Others point out that there are indications that this may be a repeat of the Great Commission on a separate occasion, but anyway, it amounts to the same. And he said unto them, Go ye. And we are an outgoing people, just in passing. We do not keep the gospel and salvation to ourselves. We believe in the universal tender of salvation. The call of the gospel, the general call to all humanity. And it is the task of the church to be constantly, through prayer, preaching the gospel to all people and doing its utmost to reach out. That word go is so significant. And it is a command. Go ye into all the world, Gentiles as well as Jews, all the world. And preach, proclaim. We're not very interested in alternatives to preaching, in drama and other means of conveying or presenting the gospel. We believe in the primacy of preaching. That's the term, that it is what God desires, what the scripture insists upon. Words, plain words, presenting arguments to people, remonstrating with them about the state of the soul, presenting Christ and his glories and his work on Calvary, trying to reflect the loving kindness and compassion of God, preach, proclaim, words, appeal to the mind, to the heart, to the will, not devices, not gimmicks, not through sentimental manipulation, not through music. We're privileged to use music to accompany our praise and our worship, but we don't major on music. Oh, you've got to get people feeling, they say. You've got to move people. Today, the fashion is heavy, rhythmic music, the music drug to try to bring them into a almost... A, a state of consciousness where they'll receive the word and be more amenable. No, no. The reformers said to the, all the paraphernalia of the Church of Rome, away with Roman theatre. And we say today, away with evangelical theatre. 
It's explaining, proclaiming, reasoning with souls. Preach, proclaim the gospel to every creature. Every creature, as Spurgeon pointed out, children are creatures too. It includes the young. How many churches now have closed their Sunday schools? Every creature, every nationality, every age group. So I just remind you of these very simple terms of the proclamation of the gospel in verse 15, just by way of introduction. But coming to verse 16, he that believeth, promise to those who hear the preaching of the apostles and their successors in every generation. We know that this applies not only to the apostles, but to their successors, because in Matthew's gospel, where the Great Commission is given slightly more fully, there is added the great promise of Christ that he will be with them in so far as they do these things, even unto the end of the world. Well, the apostles will not live unto the end of the world. So we know that these words apply not only to the apostles, but to all their successors. That's us. There are no successors as apostles to the apostles, but the people of God are their successors in making known the gospel of Christ. He that believeth, the person who responds must believe. Well, what will they believe? They believe obviously in Christ, but what will they believe about Christ? The nearest uh, uh, sentiment here, which uh, might explain that, concerns the resurrection in verse 14. The disciples are reproved because they believe not them which had seen him after he was risen. But it clearly refers to more than that. He that believeth in this gospel, what is the gospel? Well, you know, we lose sight of this today. This is really still only introductory. What is the gospel? How do you define it? Well, the gospel is specifically the soul-saving doctrines connected with Christ and Calvary and the word of God. The gospel is about the salvation of the soul. It's about the good news, the good tidings of salvation. Christ as saviour. Sometimes people think that the word gospel applies more broadly. They say, for instance, some churchmen, they're not necessarily believers in the, in the gospel themselves. They don't believe in the need for conversion, the atoning blood of Christ. And so by gospel, they think this means just, in general terms, the good news of God to society, which may be watered down to God is with you, God is for you. Trust him. Put your hope in him. No message of salvation. And they would say, that is the gospel. 
The gospel in the Bible is specifically the teaching that brings to salvation. And you can prove this easily. We could carry out a study, it would take us maybe an hour or two, and we could look at every term, every place in the New Testament where the term gospel is used. And in every single case, bar two instances, in every single case of the many references to gospel, the context is about the salvation of souls. So it's quite plain that the word gospel refers to those doctrines which specifically bring to salvation and trust in Christ through repentance and faith. Now the promise here is that those who believe the gospel will be saved, the doctrines of salvation. Why am I elaborating this? Well, for this reason, that there has grown up a tendency among many Bible believers to say, no, belief, the belief that the Bible requires is just belief in Christ, that he came, the Savior came, that he lived, that he suffered and died on Calvary. Believe in him, and he is the Savior. And that's all you do. You believe in him. You say, there was a time I didn't believe in him, or I doubted that he was ever there and that he was the Son of God. Now I believe it. And if you just believe that, you will be saved. You may describe yourself as a Christian. And these dear friends, they say, don't add things to that. It's simple. It's just believing. You may add repentance. You can't do that. That is a work. That people should repent of their sin and anguish and sorrow and be ashamed for their sin. No, put that away. That's a work. That'll come later. Just believe in Christ. That he is. That he came. That he's the saviour. And that will save you. That's all. But dear friends, that's to strip the gospel of its heart. That's all wrong to do that. To define belief as fixing only on the person of Christ and not his work and the purpose of his work and his soul-saving work and the need to come to him and trust him as you repent for the cleansing of all your sin. And that's what we're going to be briefly looking at this morning. In the 1970s, just a very brief personal anecdote, uh, I produced, first of all, the, the book Physicians of Souls. And this book was seen by the then director and publisher of the Moody Publishing House in the United States. And he told me he liked it very much. And he would like to candidate it for publication. He didn't have to say so himself, but he would very much like to publish that book in the United States. 
but it would go through the normal editorial process and be submitted to two or three uh, editors of some sort. They turned out to be, uh, if you like, professors in the Bible Institute there, connected with the publishing house, and that's what they did. Well, he told me later, he regretted, he, he wouldn't publish it because the three uh, adjudicators, as it were, uh, felt that the book should be rejected as it was doctrinally wrong. And I was given copies of their reports, quite closely typed, single-page reports, and they all amounted to the same thing. In that book, I had committed a cardinal error, and the error was that I had included this book, Physicians of Souls, was about the way of salvation. It was to Christian fellow Christian workers. It was encouraging the proclamation of the gospel. But I have included the fact that the gospel call is a call to repentance. And I had defined repentance and suggested where things often go wrong in a person's repentance. Why it isn't enough. It isn't good enough, and so on. No, 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 you can't do that. This book adds a condition to salvation. And salvation has only one step, believe. And if you add to that repentance, that's a work. You're adding a condition. And so the director of the publishing house regretted that he couldn't take the book after all. Well, it transpired that just a short while later, one of the leading contenders of this view, a man who's now gone to glory, a man named Charles Ryrie, who published, among other things, a study Bible, which is still printed and popular, uh, he, he came to see me in London here. And... Uh, this is many years ago, in the 70s, I think, I, I took him to see the biblical exhibits in the British Museum. That has nothing to do with the subject. But anyway, uh, and uh, knowing that this was his view, I talked with him about his view that you mustn't add repentance to believing. And he was adamant. I said, well, doesn't that encourage nominal Christians? People have never really repented and been born again. And he wouldn't answer that or put a view on that, but he was adamant in his view that repentance was a false addition because it added a condition which was works to believing as salvation. Now, what this told me was how far that group of quite eminent men and notable uh, teachers and preachers, how far they drifted from the grand old confessions of faith. They believed the fundamental doctrines, they wanted to preach Christ, they wanted to expound the scripture, they were no doubt used of God in their way, but they didn't uh, uh, work on the basis of the great confessions of faith. We have the Bible, that alone is inspired. Confessions of faith are not inspired. But in the uh, 
uh, 17th century, there was a, a wonderful abundance of biblical, theological teaching and analysis. The Baptists produced a confession, but as time went by, the uh, Presbyterians and the Independents produced a much longer one. But it was called, you know it, the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession of Faith, it was somewhat Presbyterian in its notions of church government, but all the doctrines of the faith were analysed and defined and presented with scriptural texts beautifully. The Baptists, therefore, largely adopted it, but adjusted it and adapted it to their own views of the church and of baptism and so on. And that's what we have in this church. We are based on the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith because our pastor was one of the, at the time, was one of the founder promoters of that confession. And that's been the basis of faith of this church ever since. And then the, the Congregationalists and the Independents under John Owen, produced a very similar, also based on the Westminster Confession, a very similar confession called the Savoy Confession. The three great explanations of all the doctrines so beautifully and carefully worked out from Scripture. But various traditions in more modern times of churches that believe the truth have not availed themselves of the riches of these confessions. And on various points, such as this, they've gone wrong. Because if you look at the three great confessions, you'll find repentance is not a work, but it is defined as a grace. Repentance is a grace, not a work. It is given by God. When God illuminates the soul by the Spirit in his regenerating work, he gives you faith. Faith, says the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, it is the gift of God. Repentance, it's a grace. It's the gift of God. And faith, trust in Christ as Savior, and repentance of your sin go hand in hand. Repentance and faith go together. No, they say. And the great example or the great basis of their abandoning repentance is the Gospel of John. How tragic that the Gospel of John should be used against repentance. I want to try to be brief with this because I want to make give time for the application. No wonder there are so many nominal Christians. In our history in England, the period for nominal Christians was the end of the Victorian and the Edwardian ages. We had great numbers of nominal Christians. The glories of uh, earlier periods and awakenings, reformation and revival, the great stirring of the Spirit through the Victorian age, many gospel preaching pulpits, 
everywhere up and down the land, in ragged schools and Sunday schools. The gospel was everywhere. But the end of the Victorian age, the end of the 19th century, saw a great decline. And in comes Darwinism and Freudianism and cynical views of the faith. And you come into the 20th century and it's decline all the way. But there's still a lot of nominal belief, nominal churchgoers, not saved, not truly born again, never really repented, never truly come to Christ, but notionally in their minds, in their heads, believing in Christ. And then it dies out. World War I gave it a great knock. World War II, fewer and fewer worshippers. And now we're, we're almost entirely an atheistic country. The United States follows so many years behind us in this. They may be ahead in most things, but they're behind in spiritual decline. They've had the Victorian age, as it were, much, much later. There are still many, many thousands. There's a sort of evangelical subculture in the United States with vast numbers of notional, nominal believers who would say they were Christians, who would say they believe in Christ. How this suits them, it's such folly to say, only believe, you don't have to repent. You don't have to be that serious. You don't have to feel your sin and your condemnation and your needs. You don't have to go in shame to the Lord, seeking washing and cleansing. What a tragedy. There's one American evangelist, dead now, who transcended most of the others in his preaching and his word went everywhere. When he started, and I remember hearing him in the 50s, he would speak about repentance. And then he decided to leave that behind as time went on. I won't name him. And he mentioned it less and less, and it was only believe. But we may have some friends here who have only believed without repentance. One side of the coin without the other. And the two things are graces, they're together. If there's a work of the Spirit in your life, and you're moved to come to Christ, and it's authentic, they're both together. You see him, and you repent. This is the scripture. Well, let me go very quickly through some texts before I make the real application. Acts chapter 2, and verse 37 the first converts on the day of Pentecost, they hear the preaching of Peter. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized. It's the repent, you see, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. How clear that is. To believe in Christ encompasses repenting of your sin 
for the remission of sin. That's what Christ said. Matthew's Gospel tells us that he went about everywhere preaching repentance and remission of sin. Mark's Gospel says the same. In chapter 1, the first words of Christ recorded is that he preached repentance. And yet, friends take the Gospel of John and they say, well, focus on this alone, where John mentions belief over and over again and hardly ever mentions repentance. Well, that's foolish Bible exposition. You cannot take the Gospel of John out of the context of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the book of Acts. Here it is in Acts. Just look down at verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, that was his first word. What is believing? Believe what? Believe Christ as Saviour, who suffered and died for our sins, who therefore has the power to forgive, who's purchased redemption, so he can forgive and wash away all sin. Belief must include repentance. Let's look at some other scriptures. Acts 11 and verse 18. Now when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. This is the situation where the Apostle Peter is accounting for himself in Jerusalem. They have challenged him. You're preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Some of the believers in Jerusalem were still not sure about that. And Peter tells them all about his experience and what has happened and what God has done. And then the people of God in Judea and in Jerusalem respond and they glorify God that the Gentiles are converted. But these are the words, then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. And I really show you this just to show you that the early church, repentance was almost a synonym for belief. When the people say, we accept it, God is saving the Gentiles. How do they put it? He's granted them repentance unto life. You cannot leave out the great factor of repentance. Then you can look while in the book of Acts to chapter 20 and verse 21. And, uh, and here we read of the Apostle Paul giving his own account of his work and how he works. I'll read it from verse 20. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. He's telling the elders from Ephesus, assembled on the beach at Miletus. I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So when the Apostle gives an account summarizing his preaching and his activity, 
It actually puts repentance first. Repentance toward God and faith. The two are inseparable and joined together. We believe in Christ as the risen Saviour, the one who died for sinners, and we repent of our sin in order to come to Christ. The Westminster Catechism puts it brilliantly and beautifully, especially in its 87th question, which the children used to learn by heart years ago. But let's turn to the Gospel of John for a moment. And uh, I can't really pursue my purpose here because time will not permit. But right in the beginning of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, this is the Gospel which is supposed to not mention repentance. But it's extraordinary that people should say that. Chapter 1, verse 29, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That's how John introduces Christ. And the Jews understood what he meant. He is the Lamb of God. Remember our Passover lamb? The Jews all knew about that. They had the Passover every year. The atoning lamb, the lamb which must be offered, the blood which covered the household and secured its safety. Here, look, the lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. The coming of Christ and his suffering and death is placed in the context of taking away sin. That's going to be the big theme in the Gospel of John. And wherever he says, believe, the context is the taking away of sin. How can anybody say that John's word, belief, believe, doesn't include repentance? Because it's always in the context of the taking away of sin. Just look at one or two verses in John. We can't do them all by any means. Chapter 3 and verse 3. Christ to Nicodemus. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I most solemnly assure you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, he believed all the rites and ceremonies and the observance of them in minute detail secured the favor of God and acceptance with God. No, says the Lord, you have to, in a sense, be born all over again, spiritually, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. You need a new heart and new eyes, a new understanding. Why, the passage will say, because of sin. Acceptance requires a new birth. And then you come down and look at the context of this. Verse 14 as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Maybe Nicodemus wouldn't fully understand this until he saw with his own eyes Christ lifted up on a cross and crucified and slain. Maybe it wasn't until then he fully grasped what he was talking about. He said he was God, the Son of God, the Messiah. Here he is, hoisted up, nailed to a cross to die for sinners. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Why would he perish? Condemned because of sin. But if he only believes in the Son of Man lifted up, that includes repentance, obviously, because it's all about sin. For God so loved the world, that wonderful verse. And verse 17, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, which is what it deserved, but that the world through him and what he's done in being lifted up might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There you are, they say. Just believe in his name. Just believe in that he came. Don't repent. But look, verse 19, and this is the condemnation. Look at the context. That light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Evil deeds, loving darkness. But to believe in Christ means you've come to loathe and hate the deeds and to regret them and be ashamed of them and repent of them. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. It's all about deeds and what I've done. Repentance is woven in to the word belief for the Apostle John. It's inescapable. The concepts are inseparable. And we could go through reference after reference in the Gospel of John. And that is what we'll find throughout. That's a study which deserves to be taken. But I'd like to just come to conclusion with some words of application. Have we all repented of sin and truly come to Christ? Repentance can go wrong. It may be that a person repents only of one sin. He says to himself, I've lost my temper dreadfully. I've been ill-tempered. I've gone too far. I've made my wife or my children utterly distraught. I've turned upside down the household. I'm so ashamed. I'll repent. Good. 
Good. But is that all? Is it only your temper? God may keep you a while waiting at the door of salvation until you remember the rest. You don't have to make a perfect list, but you say, Lord, it's not just my temper, it's the whole of me. I can be so mean. I can be so deceitful. I can be so selfish. I can be so... Oh, Lord, forgive all of me. Not my hands only, not my head only, all of me. It may be you've repented of only one thing and God is waiting for more, greater recognition of all that Christ needs to do for you, how much sin he must bear away to secure your salvation when he died on Calvary's cross. Or it may be that you're only repenting because you're embarrassed. You've got a secret sin. And it's been found out. It's come to light. And you're ashamed. So you repent. But you know, you really are only repenting to somehow assuage your embarrassment. What about the rest? Not only that secret sin, but all of you needs the Saviour. So there can be faults in repentance. You don't need to make an inventory or a complete list of everything you've ever done. That would take a lifetime. That's impossible. But you need to acknowledge, I am altogether fallen and sinful, and I need a new heart and a new life and the cleansing of my record by Almighty God and acceptance with him. You need to acknowledge that. You need to have just a little depth in your repentance. It's not a work, it's a grace. If God is at work in your heart, you'll feel it. The shame of my sin, my need of Christ, my indebtedness to him for dying for all my sin. You need sorrow, you need shame, you need a little knowledge that you're condemned if you don't repent. You need a little fear, therefore. You need a little hatred of sin. You need a little longing to be cleansed. Oh, if I'm not cleansed and forgiven, I'm lost. It needs to be more than five minutes. That's repentance. And that's part of belief. And that's what brings you to Christ. In fact, Christ has already put it in your heart. That's how he draws you to himself. That's salvation. Never 
underrate repentance. And we go on repenting as believers sincerely until Christ finally transforms us into his likeness and takes us to everlasting glory.